The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Aarons Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change. Today, we're not talking about depression or anxiety, but another mental struggle that so many people face, a kind of neurodiversity, one that often creates anxiety in those who have the disability, but can also impart tremendous gifts and skills in your work life. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. Now, most of you probably know a bit about ADD and ADHD, that a lot of kids are diagnosed from a young age, that it disproportionately affects men, and that it can make succeeding in school and work difficult, at least in traditional workplaces. If you follow entrepreneurship, you may have heard stories from legends of business. Richard Branson, JetBlue founder David Nealman, the founders of Ikea, Kinko's, and Charles Schwab talk about what ADHD gave them as business leaders. And we'll discuss that later in the show with Johan Wickland, a professor at Syracuse, who has looked at the ways people with ADHD have succeeded in entrepreneurship. Our first two stories are from achievers who also have ADHD and who figured it out at a relatively late stage in life. First, a story of ADHD from a place you might not expect. Nate Swan hasn't started a company you've heard of, but he's had an impressive career as a military pilot. I've been lucky to, to be able to kind of run my career the way that I wanted to. I actually started life as an airplane pilot for the Army, doing uh, a mission that was one takeoff, one landing, six hours later up in the, up in the sky, uh, and it was very, very boring. Uh, that was really not the best environment for me. I could get through it, and I could operate in it, because the interesting parts were like, when you're dealing with you know takeoffs and landings, the first and last, or dealing with any flight, Takeoffs and landings, the first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes of any flight are really um, the, the busy times when you're trying to do all your, your takeoff and landing stuff. And so those times will kind of get you excited and get you going. There's enough happening to some extent. But if you're just going up and doing idiot circles over the same same place and coming back down, uh, it can definitely be, be very taxing. And I learned that that really wasn't the best environment for me. Uh, as a young officer looking for opportunities to um, to excel in other communities, I actually asked to leave the airplane community and come back and fly helicopters, which is which is blasphemy to probably the majority of folks that were that were doing the business. And so, I came back and I was actually selected to be be an Apache pilot. And I didn't think that was really the environment for me until I got into the community and realized that was the absolute perfect environment for me. Um, there's a lot of activity. There's a lot going on. Um, you know, we use the aircraft now specifically in both kind of a scout, you know, uh, reconnaissance mode as well as an attack mission. So there's a lot that you have to do. And even when you're just out doing a, quote, boring scout mission, you're still out there looking under trees and looking at rocks and trying to find people in cities. And you're doing something all the time. Right. And so I found that that environment was way more interesting and way more fun. Nate has an experience that's very similar to many others with ADHD. Throughout my career, both, like I said, both in combat as well as, you know, being a pilot and things, you know, I, I have 
always excelled in areas where there's a lot of activities, a lot of things going on all at the same time. Um, because it's almost like the world has now sped up to where my brain is at all times. I find I am more relaxed listening to rock music and watching, having the TV going on with a movie or something like that and playing, uh, you know, a silly, um, you know, game on my iPad or something like that. That environment is very relaxing to me because it's almost like I sped up the world around me to keep up with where my brain is at all times. For Nate, like many others, ADHD comes with anxiety. I think I've had anxiety most of my life. I remember being a, being a young kid in, in high school. Uh, and I think somebody even asked me, I was like, hey, are you anxious? I was like, I don't even know what that even means. Because my life is just, to some to some extent, always been some level of anxious, right? Uh, I'm a military brat. I grew up, grew up as a military brat. You know, uh, this is, I'm fourth generation military. My family has, has been soldiers, to, you know, for pretty much uh, our entire existence in the United States, uh, going back many, many generations. Um, and so I think... Part of my anxiety probably came from the instability of just moving around as a child, right? I'm going, I was in fifth grade in my fifth school. Um, you know, I had went to three different high schools before I graduated. So um, nothing wrong. It's just we moved to two different states in a foreign country. So, um, and so I think I'd always had some level of, of heightened anxiety because of life in, in, as, a, as a whole. Insert ADHD into this as well. Um, and I think it's just um, the ADHD was probably overlapped with the anxiety, anxiety overlapped with ADHD to where it was it it was almost masked, um, masking each other um, to some extent. But I can't say, you know, my, my ADHD has always been uh, has helped helped me uh, make decisions and, and be responsive quickly. Um, but my anxiety really probably kicks in more afterwards uh, when I go back and try and you know reevaluate what it is that I did, start questioning the results of what happened and things. Uh, did I get it right? Nate was also diagnosed later in life. And for a long time, it didn't even occur to him that he might have ADHD. But after over a decade in the military, he started having more trouble with his management duties and relationships with others. And it came as a surprise. So uh, I would have uh, video teleconference events with uh, some of my peers uh, I would perceive something differently than they were. And I would get into arguments over VTC with, all, with a number of these folks to the point where at least one of them I got kicked out of. And I was just like, okay, something is unraveling here and, and something just isn't right. And so needless to say, as like, there, there's a lot of things, you know, that were impacting my, my professional life that the, the number of that thing, number of those things came back to my personal life as well. And so I wanted to try and find a way to, um, to, to improve upon this. And I realized that I couldn't do it, couldn't do it alone. And again, prior to diagnosis, I didn't even know I was a, I had a problem. So here I am as a as a raging bull in a china shop, destroying everything that I'm, that I'm around, and not even realizing that there's a problem. Until I start realizing, I start you know opening that aperture a little bit wider and seeing some of the things that I'm actually doing through treatment, through diagnosis, through medication, and then going back and reevaluating. It's like, man, I have been a really crappy person to live with. Now, being diagnosed with any neuroatypical disorder can be scary especially as an adult. But for Nate, it could mean his career as he knew it was over. As a military pilot, you cannot be on stimulants, which is the most common medication for ADHD. You know, when it comes to ADHD specifically, um, you know, the, obviously the, the known drug that is there to, to help people, you know, get better uh, is to take stimulant medication. The problem with it is, is effectively stimulant medication will emit, you know, for a long-term usage of any kind will immediately ground you uh, and, will, and will, is a flight restricting condition if you have to be on some sort of stimulant medication. We have folks with ADHD that are in the military, right? They find out when they're in the military, we can put them on stimulants and 99 times out of 100, it's not a big deal, right? They can probably continue the rest of their career on it and it's not going to cause any problems whatsoever. But with pilots, it's different. 
effectively, and they kind of tell you this when you start flight school. I was like, hey, I, I got to stop making decisions on how I what I wanted to do with my body when I decided I was going to be a pilot. Um, I have to ask if, if I want to take, you know, aspirin, you know, type thing. Um, because they want to make sure that whatever's going on isn't something else and they make sure that it's it's treated. I've got some of the best medical care as well. So it kind of balances itself out, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to this, you know, the concern obviously with stimulants is increased heart rates and other things that go along, you know, biologically with being on stimulant medication. The non-stimulant medication, if it didn't work for some reason and stimulants would have been the only thing, then there's a very good likelihood that my career would have been over three or four or five years ago. When Nate did go on a non-stimulant medication, though, luckily it worked pretty well. The biggest thing I could feel like improve is probably my ability to kind of take in my surroundings and not immediately respond to them. So something that I've always been good at is my ability to be able to, to take in stimuli, make a quick decision and go execute. It's very helpful, obviously, in my job, both as a pilot and both as a military leader, you know, especially working in combat and things that worked out really well when you're at the tactical level and you just have to kind of, you know, you're in a knife fight every day trying to figure out how to do this, this individual task or that individual task. And so uh, I was really good at doing that. But when I moved to the organization level and things had to slow down a little bit more, well, my ability to slow down, you know, uh, I'm, I'm like a, a, a Ferrari with, you know, like plastic brakes effectively, right? So I'm moving in a million miles an hour and I basically have no way of, of slowing down effectively. So the reality uh, was once I went on medication and started seeking treatment, uh, I could really kind of feel feel myself slowing down at a rate to where I could keep up with everyone else and I wasn't flying past everyone. Nate's experience has also made him think about how he can be a better, more empathetic leader. And he also recognizes the strengths of people with ADHD. In the military, you got to show up for physical training at six o'clock in the morning and, you know, the uh, they're going to start, you know, with the bugle and the alarm's going to go off and everything's going to happen at one particular time. And heaven forbid you ever be late for such an event, right? So in the corporate business world, hey, you know, you got to punch that clock right at nine o'clock or whatever. Nine o one is not good enough or whatever. Well, the reality of it is, is if you can open that aperture and be a little more willing to work with folks to say, okay, hey, once they're there, I am certain that they're going to put in 110%. They've probably done it their entire lives to give 110% just to cope to be 80% of what everybody else is doing. You're going to get a hard worker. You're going to get somebody dedicated. You're going to get somebody who wants to do the best job that they possibly can. Nobody shows up to work to do a bad job. Um, you know, another good piece of advice I got from somebody, you know, if everyone wants to do the best job that they can, they just may not know um, what they need to know to be able to do that job successfully. Um, and so have conversations about culture, have conversations about what's acceptable and what's not right. Um, just because somebody is is reacting to something, um, they may be having a meltdown for, for, for gosh sakes, um, depending on what it is. The reality is, is they're only responding to the environment that they're in. And if what you can do is work with that environment uh, and work with that individual uh, to be flexible enough to where they can still meet all the goals and, and, and accomplish all the things you want them to accomplish and yet have a little bit you know, of a more acceptable um, work solution I mean, for the 10 and a half months I was deployed in Afghanistan, I was on night shift. So, and I loved it, loved every minute of it. I'd show up to work at eight o'clock at night. I'd work till six o'clock in the morning, every single day, 365. It was the best time of my life because that just naturally seemed to work well in that environment. So I'm not saying that all ADHD folks will be in the same way, but everyone's going to have their groove. Help them find that groove in your organization. And I guarantee you that you're going to get um, uh, someone who's going to give 100, 110, 120% of what they possibly can give burning themselves out at the end. So that's something else you got to watch out for. 
Because if they're doing something they really enjoy, they're going to give you every bit of it. They're going to give you everything they can possibly give you. Now, as Nate thinks about his next move, he wants to make sure workplaces open up to the idea of different ways of thinking and processing information, and that both the military and corporate worlds understand the neurodiverse community better and realize what a strength it can be. We're, we're only moving f- closer to uh, a modern-day um, acceptance of, of neurodiversity and other behavioral health and mental health issues uh, inside of the military. We see this on the veteran community all the time. You know, we, you know, we lose 22 soldiers or 22 military personnel a day to suicide because of oftentimes you know, some sort of uh, behavioral health or mental health issue um, you know, that it goes undiagnosed while in service or manifests itself while in service and doesn't get treated or continues with the veteran after they depart the service. And we're losing them by you know, 22 a day every day. And so the sad part about that is, is I think early on uh, in my career, the early 2000s or so, you know, it was very much, you know, you, you go to go to the psych, you go, go to the, the, the behavioral health provider, you go to the go get family counseling or something like that. Your career is going to be over. They're going to take your security clearance and and the whole world's going to come to an end. But the reality is, is over time, what we've learned is, you know, just like, OK, I have an injury to my foot because I went out and went running and I, and I, and I rolled my ankle and I, and I hurt myself. Okay. Well, I go to physical therapy and when I get the therapy and I heal my foot back up, I'm a better soldier when it's all said and done and I can go back to work and I can you know, continue to operate like I, like I would. If I don't get the help and treatment, I will only continue to slow down and get worse and that sort of thing. And we've learned over time that because of the strain and stress of, of a very long, what these very long wars have done to our military, it's taken our leaders the opportunity to, uh, to say, okay, what are those other thing, areas that we can focus on and try and improve? And mental health has definitely been one of those, those targeted areas where it's become more acceptable. Um, I mean, I remember as a young company commander, I had my brigade commander tell me every single senior leader in this organization will go to behavioral health and will be, will get evaluated at least once in your career, in your, in your command, because they don't, they want to crush the stigma. They want to get rid of it. Um, they want people to go get the help that they actually need. Um, because if I can help you, I may not be able to fix you, right? So, I mean, some things just can't be fixed, um, but some things can be managed and they can be managed to a degree where you can get you back in the fight because I've invested so much time and effort and energy into making you who you are. It doesn't do me any good to, you know, let your anxiety or let your depression or let something manifest to such a degree to where that takes you out of the fight. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. I also spoke with Dan Bastian, who, along with his wife, Angie, started the company Angie's Boom Chicka Pop. It's a delicious popcorn snack brand. You might have seen their pastel packaging at the grocery store that started in the early 2000s and has grown to be valued at over $200 million. 
Sebastian grew up having trouble in school, but he didn't know exactly what was wrong. I, I wasn't understanding things. Things were coming in, but they were getting kind of jumbled up in my brain and I was really fall. I, I felt like for the first time I wasn't fitting in in the academic setting. It kind of was a little scary and I became anxious and it was about that time from third grade, it just continued to get worse and I felt myself falling further and further behind. It really intensified and as each year went along, I started feeling more and more inadequate, more anxious in class and school and I started to act out. As an adult, he continued to face some of the problems he felt as a kid and college wasn't easy. But somewhere along the way, he discovered teaching, largely because he realized he could help kids like himself and connect in a way that others just couldn't. There were things that worked about that job and things that were harder to deal with. Oftentimes, I think my biggest struggle, and even today, is when it's all on me that I have to present or create, and I'm supposed to be the expert, is when I get very anxious. And I think in the classroom, you know, although I was probably considered the expert, I also challenged the kids to become experts themselves, I think. But when, when we had, you know, teachers meetings or we had to speak in front of, you know, parent teacher conferences, that wasn't easy for me. You know, I still viewed myself as inadequate. I still had these same struggles and fears and demons. And a lot of these demons, they didn't go away as he and Angie started building their business. But Dan also knew his strengths and he started to draw on them. What I was really good at was putting together a checklist of things to do and knocking it out and then going to work and, you know, working really hard and focusing on what I was good at, which was building relationships, working long hours, being relentless, being persistent and building a team. What I wasn't necessarily great at was out being out front and center. And I kind of accepted that and allowed Ange to take advantage of that. What I have is a strong work ethic that gets things done. That work ethic, the ability to focus so singularly on a goal, helped him build his business while he and Angie balanced each other's strengths and weaknesses out. I think I have this feeling like if it can't be done, I want to do it. The really hard part is where I think I flourish, where I think most people would give up. Um, I'm pretty good at being persistent and moving forward. Because I didn't know any better, I was not afraid to just go after things. If I probably knew more, I'd be terrified of doing what I did. I was just very aggressive in meeting with buyers and meeting with store managers and sharing our product and working and working and working all hours, all weekends and everything, because that was what I knew. My first reaction and decision was to move and move quickly. And because I didn't have the patience to sit and wait, nor did I have the ability to understand the potential consequences. Maybe I had the ability to, but I didn't want to, you know, hear about, well, let's look at it from this perspective. I only had one perspective, and that was to move fast before anyone else would. Even with the success of their company, Bastian admits the ADHD and the insecurities that come with it are still there sometimes. It's just been an ongoing journey um, for me. It's, it's, you know, something that I have been 
I guess, struggling with forever. And it, I always thought that over time it would go away. You know, this, this feeling of this anxiousness, being so anxious and, you know, feeling kind of inadequate about what, what my main challenge was getting up in front of people and speaking. I, I have, you know, I've gone, I've, I've seen different coaches and therapists um, throughout the years of just wanting to get better and better in the sense of getting more confident and accepting who I am and accepting that I may not be perfect. I, I may not do this really well, but it's not a reflection on who I am as a person. I'm not a failure. And he reflects on what helped the business grow and how much it was influenced by who he was, including his ADHD. When I had something to focus on that was really instrumental or was really important in my life, I could zero in on it intensely. And I could zero in and focus on 10 different things intensely. And that was one of the things that I think, you know, ADHD people tend to be able to do is, you know, I, I would have a notebook back in the early 2000s and I would have a checklist of, you know, 20 things every day that I needed to do that every night I would, the night before I would write down, do this, do this. And I would check things off and I would have a bunch of them going on at one time while I was at my desk or I was out in the, you know, the road or in the plant. And my ability to focus on getting something done uh, was strong. Now, once I lost kind of, <laughs> uh, if I would get distracted, that's when the problem would arise and I would, I would move on to something else and something that I was starting on uh, wouldn't always get finished. And so that's where my wife would come in and kind of, and some of my other, the other employees was like, all right, we got to focus on this because I'm not good at leading meetings. I mean, I can, I can, you know, there's these things we need to get done and I can go off on a tangent and all of a sudden we have 15 minutes left in the meeting. We've only covered two things, but if it's important, I can, I can knock it out. So like many stories we've heard this season, having a mental difference or struggle doesn't mean you can't succeed. In fact, it can help you. Here's my conversation with Johan Wickland, a professor at Syracuse who himself has ADHD and who studies the impact of ADHD on business. I immediately sort of was interested in uh, the opening of an article you wrote about ADHD because you asked the question, is ADHD bad or good? And you framed it in the, in the context of you being extremely tall. You're what, six foot seven? Um, and I'm six foot two, which for a woman is also extraordinarily tall. And and you said, well, is being tall good or bad? Well, it depends, right? If you're stuck in a tiny airplane seat, pretty bad. If you're wanting to see in a crowd, being tall is great. Why was this an analogy that you wanted people to think about when you talked about the context of ADHD and work? Uh, because I think that's so important when we look at people around us to realize that there is no human attribute that's universally positive or negative. Uh, because I think everybody has a role to play in society. It's a matter of finding the right context for you. Mm. Anything you are as a human being can be good if you find the right place for yourself where you can flourish. And I've seen that in my research very much when it comes uh, to people with ADHD. 
I'm sure you know the classic thing that traditional school is is usually really much like torture for a person with ADHD that don't re- fit very well in that context. Whereas in, let's say, sports or entrepreneurship, they can fit very well. So that's why I use an analogy of, you know, well, when people see me, that's the first thing they always comment upon, you know, oh, you're so tall. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love uh, that, don't you? <laughs> like, oh, I didn't know. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, okay, so but but you do point out and and I and I have to say as the mother of an ADHD kid, I find this to be true. It's really the negatives that we hear about mostly. Yeah. And I mean that the reason for that is because it's the medical profession that has kidnapped the, the discussion about ADHD. Mm. I mean, essentially, and it's not strange if you think about it because medical doctors they help people have problems you only see a doctor if you're having a problem you don't go there and they say oh you're looking so great everything is fine no you go there because you have some kind of issue and adhd has very much been discussed by the medical profession and as you know as a parent with your own kids that when you see a person with adhd you know that they might have some problems, but you can also see that they can do excellent in many walks of life, in many other situations. So I think that it's important that we see, we get another voice added to that conversation. Well, you have ADHD and and you're an academic, which which is right. You must have sort of loved school. Like, how did your ADHD help you become who you are? I think that, <laughs> first of all, I think in academia, you find all sorts of uh, weird people that don't fit in <laughs> anywhere, anywhere else in society, because I think academia lends itself to, you, you can really adapt work to fit your own idiosyncratic, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, ways that you are as a human being. So uh, for me, it's it's research. It's really strange when i started first grade my my teacher asked you know everybody what do you want to be when you become an adult and i'm old enough that all all the little boys that said they want to be firefighters or police officers and then i said i want to be a professor (laughs) and i still remember this because my school teacher she asked me nobody else than me she asked me why do you want to be a professor? And I was so embarrassed because I, I couldn't give her a straight answer. But, you know, I, I've always seen seen research as something that's just fascinated me. And um, that's why I went in, into academia. I, I had a, a bit of a career in consulting before, and I, I just felt I didn't fit there at all. But as soon as I started working on my dissertation, um, my wife told me that uh, you're like a fish back in water. Well, so so just to take to zoom out a little bit, is there a certain kind of mix of tasks in general that suit people with ADHD? Um, I think, I mean, they, this is not my own research, but they have done research. And, and one thing that's important is this, uh, that there is variation and change, that you don't do the same thing all the time. I think because if, I mean, if you have ADHD, you get easily bored and therefore just doing the same thing over and over again does not suit a person with ADHD. But it's interesting because 
On the other hand, that seems to be something that people uh, with autism enjoy very much, that they can actually do really well uh, and, and seem to be attracted to doing things uh, that are repetitive. But anyway, mm-hmm. you know, anything that um, creates excitement, there's variation and uh, self-expression are typically things that uh, suit a person with ADHD. So before we dive in specifically to to entrepreneurship and ADHD, I just wanted to, I know you're not a psychologist, but um, there are, I think, typically two broader broad areas of ADHD inattentive and then impulsive do you find differences um in sort of success or workplace fit depending on if you're more impulsive or if you're more inattentive yes and this is this is what i found in my own research and others have found that in studies all over the world in terms of entrepreneurship it seems that it's the hyperactivity and impulsivity that benefit uh, people with ADHD and entrepreneurship, uh, not so much uh, inattention. And yet, do you find that they can compensate for inattention if they are deeply engaged? How does that all play out? Yes. I mean, that's, uh, as you know, being the mother of somebody with ADHD, you know that if you have ADHD, you get easily bored. And that is the inattention aspect that but at the same time, you're actually very good at focusing if it's something that you're interested in, something that you're passionate about. So what helps is that if, if, you, if you're able to outsource the things that you don't enjoy doing yourself, you can actually uh, do well, even if you have this inattention. And what I found in essentially everybody with ADHD that I spoke to hates accounting they hate doing the books for their businesses and so (laughs) my first recommendation will be that don't do it have somebody else do it whether it's a friend or a partner or you know a a professional person doesn't really matter but focus as much as you can on the things you're passionate about in your business you know i have to tell you though i think that some of the best business advice i ever heard was along the same lines which is that we spend a lot of time in business focusing on learning what we're not as strong at and not really diving into what we're great at. And and we should really dive into what we're great at and figure out immediately how to get others to help us with what we don't do well. Absolutely. And I would say that that goes for all entrepreneurs, mm. uh, but it, it's particularly important uh, if you have ADHD. I mean, you because you have like a pretty extreme profile in terms of uh, competences. Typically, you're I mean, you're extremely good at the things you're interested in, mm-hmm. but you're typically worse than average on the things you're not interested in. <laughs> and because of that, uh, and because entrepreneurship entails doing so many different things, you 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 have to have people around you that can help you pick up the slack where where there's stuff that you just don't enjoy doing because you're going to be so bad at it. It's really bad. Like not paying taxes and bills. I have experienced that personally. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Well, so what was your first inkling about, what was your first sense that, wow, ADHD really could help an entrepreneur? Where were you in your research and your career? 
So I, I was diagnosed uh, with ADHD at an adult age. And then I, I started reading, as, because I'm a scholar, I started reading the, the academic literature on ADHD. And I was just so impressed by how they were able to pinpoint all the problems that I had had myself. But at the same time, I, I thought, I mean, I'm actually pretty successful. I've been married to the same woman for a long time. I, I have two, two kids that are beautiful. I've, I've, I've had a pretty good career. Uh, I thought to myself, it can't be all bad because, I mean, these symptoms, as they call them, they, they're part of my personality, right? It's, it's part of who I am. And I've seen that I, I, I can uh, really do well. So I figured there's got to be some flip side to this. I know that I'm really good at certain things. I mean, I can make decisions on the fly. And they're not always right, but I, more, than, more than not, I, I actually make pretty good decisions. So I started thinking, could there be a flip side? And um, then I've been doing this research now for, I think it's eight years. And I found it so fascinating that the entrepreneurs with ADHD, not only were they doing well in entrepreneurship, but it was actually in part the things that are part of the diagnosis that made them perform so well that they could flip, they can kind of could turn this thing that is considered a, a disorder, they could turn that into a strength. And that's mm -hmm. that was really amazing to see. When you're an entrepreneur, there's always uncertainty. You don't know if your business is going to succeed. And because of that, that, that creates anxiety and uncertainty then creates anxiety and you know you want to collect more information before you act mm -hmm. so typically what happens is that people sit on the fence forever but if you have adhd you have this impulsivity where you you don't like to wait you like to do things right away and you're very good at seeing the potential upside of stuff mm -hmm. not so much the potential downside so you have this bias towards action and that is essentially the most important factor of why it's it's a good thing to have ADHD in entrepreneurship, that when you're faced with uncertainty, you don't get anxious and don't know what to do. You actually act despite this uncertainty. Gosh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we also, we spoke with um, a combat pilot with ADHD and, and he was at his best during war scenarios that would send most people hiding and screaming under a barrel, and, and yet he found the ability to hyper-focus in chaos yeah. and stress. That was incredible. I also, yeah, I also saw that they had done research on firefighters, and mm. it's the same thing there, that firefighters with ADHD do really well because they come into this scene where there's just a hundred things going on and it's complete chaos, but they can focus and, and see these are the most important things. And I also think with your fighter pilot, I think it's important also that they can make fast decisions. I mean, if you're a fighter pilot, you have to make decisions there and then, and you have to make the right call. And I think that's something which, uh, which lends itself really well to a person with ADHD. It's also important that in entrepreneurship, uh, you design your own work to fit your own strengths and weaknesses. I think that's largely the beauty of entrepreneurship. So entrepreneurship, it attracts, it attracts a lot of people who are kind of outside of the norm. I think the most 
what most people know is that immigrants are attracted to entrepreneurship. I think that's well, well known to most people. And that is because they have a hard time fitting in their new country. They, they don't speak the language. I mean, uh, nobody knows about their degrees from universities they never heard of and so forth. But, but they can actually, you know, start a business and shape it into whatever they want it to be. We know that it's the same thing with people with disability, that uh, they are twice as likely as people without a disability to run their own business. And it's, it's the same thing for people with ADHD, that they can design their businesses to fit their own strengths. And one thing I noticed that I found interesting was that, as you may know, I don't know if this applies to your children, but uh, people with ADHD often have disturbed uh, sleep patterns. So I met a lot of entrepreneurs tell me they wake up four o'clock in the morning full of energy and they immediately start working. And then like 10 o'clock, they might crash and then they take a nap for an hour. And of course, that's very hard to do in a regular job, right? <laughs> Not many empl employers would accept that you get, get to work at four in the morning and that you, you suddenly just take a nap when everybody else is working. But that you can do if you run your own business. So that's just a, a simple example of how entrepreneurship lends itself to these kinds of adaptations. Mm -hmm. Over Overall, would you say that people who've lived with ADHD all their own lives, like they get bored easily? Do they do they learn? Can you learn to build resilience? Because even 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 the most brilliant entrepreneur has to sit through meetings, you know, that they find boring. Like, what's can you build that sort of resilience muscle so you don't check out as much? I think not only that you can. I think you actually will because I think it's. I mean, if you have ADHD and you manage to go through get through school and you know, just have a functioning life, that just requires a lot of resilience, right? Mm -hmm. Because school is so poorly adapted to the needs of a person with ADHD. So I think that already from when you start kindergarten or first grade, you have an, you're, you're facing an uphill battle in terms of, of getting through school. And if you manage to do that, I think you will have a lot of resilience. So I, I um, I don't think it's. Uh, a, I don't think resilience is a problem for for entrepreneurs with ADHD. On the opposite, I think they would have more resilience, particular resilience to um, if things go bad. Mm. Uh, you also asked me about you know uh, sitting in meetings and stuff. I think that I've met, spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs, and what they tell me is that they simply adapt the meetings to their needs, meaning that. Um, I know one entrepreneur who said that he uh, they don't have any chairs in his conference rooms because he wants meetings to be short. <laughs> you know, and I think that's really clever. You know, that uh, you don't you don't need a meeting to be two hours. Maybe you, you you can fix it in thirty minutes and stuff. I love that. Well, I'll never forget. I heard the JetBlue founder David Neeleman say that the reason there's TVs in the back of JetBlue. Uh, seats is because he would get bored flying because he has ADHD and he created this incredible innovation, you know? Yeah, oh, that's, a, that's a great example. Absolutely. I loved it. Um, well, my, my last question, I, I want to touch on anxiety a little bit because we do know that there is a high comorbidity. We know that there's a high comorbidity of, of anxiety among people with ADHD. Have you looked into this and what's your advice? And do you yourself have anxiety? 
I've I've had a lot of anxiety, <laughs> and I mean, uh, as you know, I've, I've 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 listened to your podcast, and as you as you speak about uh, anxiety, is a great thing, right? Uh, because it, it, it can generate uh, the drive to actually do something. You know, for example, if you're, uh, at, which is also associated with ADHD, if you're a procrastinator, it's only when you build up sufficient anxiety that you that you actually start doing things and, and start acting. Um, so uh, that said, I have not looked into uh, uh, how ADHD symptoms and uh, anxiety uh, interacts and potentially help or hurt in entrepreneurship. I think it's a great it's a great um, possibility for future research, though, because um, generally speaking, we have seen very little research about anxiety in entrepreneurship. And I, like I said, I think it's 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 a um, an important driver for a lot of people. Well, look, you and me, I mean, that's my greatest dream. And and I think that a lot of um, what I've noticed going to so many conferences is a lot of entrepreneurs like to talk about their ADHD. It's almost cool. Um, mm-hmm. I, I only wish that they were as open about their anxiety. Um, but, you know, one day. I think it's so interesting. And, and that's where we started off with the height and stuff. I think it's so interesting <laughs> to think about things that we usually think about as negative, right? Like mm-hmm. ADHD or anxiety to think about when can this be, be useful, right? When, what can I do? Because if I know I'm a high anxiety person, I know that there, there are probably things I should stay away from. There's probably, but I should also think about where can this actually work to my advantage? So I think I, I kind of like that perspective to think about not so much about how can I change as a person? I don't mind. <laughs> I think it's a good thing to, to think about, you know, self-improvement. But I think very often if you look at, uh, I think we're missing out this thing about if I am the way I am, where can I find my space in life where those characteristics that I have can work to my advantage? And that applies to ADHD and, and anxiety alike. That's it for season three of The Anxious Achiever. I want to thank the team at HBR, Adam Buckholtz, Ann Saney, Colin Howarth, and the whole group that gets the show sounding great every week. I'd like to thank my producer, Mary Dew. Our music is by Brian Campbell at Signal Sounds NYC. And we'll talk to you soon. If in the meantime, you'd like to send a show idea or give me feedback, you can find me on Twitter at MoraAM or send me a message on LinkedIn. I've been getting so many great show ideas on LinkedIn recently, and it's been really fantastic. And we are reading everything. So thanks very much. Talk to you soon. From HBR Presents, this is The Anxious Achiever, and I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy.